This is a Federal News Network podcast. NASA has been one of the agencies at the forefront of observing the effects of climate change, and thanks to a collaboration of several space agencies around the world, predicting extreme weather events tied to it may be getting more and more accurate. One of the participants in the Atmosphere Observing System mission is the Canadian Space Agency. To discuss the role it will be playing in this project, I got a chance to talk to Thomas Piekatowski, who is head of the AOS Mission Delivery Office at CSA. A day after NASA headquarters approved the uh, sci- the study plan, that was back in December of 2018, uh, and the study plan wasn't called the Atmosphere Observing System, it was called the Aerosols, Clouds, Convection, Precipitation Study Plan. The day after that, uh, we received an email from uh, people that we know at NASA saying, would you like to consider being part of this study? Uh, there will be a meeting coming up. Uh, and so we attended that. It was in April of 2019. At that time, we presented uh, the things that we were interested in. We saw what uh, uh, the French, uh, the Japanese, the US, uh, DLR was there. They presented uh, DLR is from Germany, uh, and uh, and things developed from there. And so, what were some of those uh, interests that you all had in common? You don't have to tell me whatever. <laughs> Give me a re- total recap. But what was some common ground that you all discovered when discussing this project? Well, of course, the the measurement of aerosols and clouds uh, is the common link. There, there are various aspects that, uh, that each of those international partners has in mind. Uh, for Japan, it's more the precipitation. Uh, for us, it was more some instruments that are, are making measurements in a particular way. It's what we call the atmospheric limb, L-I-M-B, and that, that means looking at the atmosphere in profile from the side, because you can look at the atmosphere straight down and one of our instruments does that. It measures, it, it will image clouds and, and the atmosphere in the thermal and far infrared. And the other two instruments are going to be looking at the same air mass at the same time, but from the side. So viewed on, from the, those two instruments will be on a different spacecraft about 2,500 kilometers away, but looking at the same air mass at the same time. So we could very good vertical uh, resolution with those instruments. So those are the instruments that you all are sending up and are attaching to a couple satellites of your own and one NASA satellite. Can you just give me a, a basic overview of this project? You you know uh, talked about specifically what your instruments are doing, but what is the Atmosphere Observing System mission? Is it um, just taking the atmosphere in as a whole and trying to find different changes in how they affect weather events, or am I oversimplifying it? <laughs> Well, you know, the atmosphere is a lot of things, and for for many people, the atmosphere would be more the gases, and but but and for weather people, it's more the the the, the big picture dynamics of winds and clouds and rain and so forth. For this mission, though, the atmosphere observing system is focusing on aerosols and clouds, but also the the cloud convection that is the movement of the. Uh, water vapor and droplets and ice uh, up and down vertically, and uh, and and um, the precipitation um, that that's, uh, f- falls out of the the clouds. 
so it's it's really focusing on these two things aerosols is like dust it some of it comes from sulfur let's say when sulfur gases are um either emitted by volcanoes or by pollution some of it can work its way up into the upper troposphere and lower stratosphere and then it forms droplets and and these kind of glom together and you get what we call aerosols uh, some other aerosols can come from forest fire smoke um some could be dust or so so the various kinds um and those aerosols have an effect on the sunlight that gets reflected back out to space and they also affect the way clouds behave the formation of the clouds whether they precipitate or not where how much uh, all those all those things so nasa um, set out to make measurements of aerosols clouds convection precipitation and they uh, did this study and they uh, it was a, almost a, a three-year study. So from April 2019 was when the, the first workshop was held uh, until, um, well, we had the mission concept review in May of this year, so three years later. Um, and at, during that time, they looked at many different possible instruments, uh, their configurations, uh, spacecraft. And, and during that time, the international partners also kind of uh, firmed up their uh, intentions and plans and, and so forth. So now that 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 constellation will be uh, four satellites in two different orbits. In uh, the first launch, that will be uh, a Japanese satellite and an American satellite into an inclined orbit. An inclined meaning. Uh, it doesn't go over the North Pole. It will go over the the highest point. I think it will reach, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, is about 55 degrees. And then two years later, uh, in late 2030, early 2031, uh, the uh, other spacecraft or, or other launch vehicle would would take a large American satellite and a much smaller Canadian satellite, and. Uh, uh, again, make uh, uh, w with different instruments. So all of these four satellites, two different inclinations, um, they make a, a, a large uh, number of uh, measurements. Some of those are, are with lasers, what we call LIDARs, because the laser shines down and, and some of the light comes back and you you can measure the, the time and the intensity of the light that gets reflected from the object. So you can profile the atmosphere, the, the aerosols and clouds. Uh, other instruments will be radar and they can do the similar kind of thing where you, they're reflected off of the clouds and off of the droplets and ice particles. So you can measure where they are vertically and you can also get measurements of speed kind of like uh, the police radar measures your speed well these radars will be able to measure the speed of the upwelling uh, convection and and downflow um, and then there will be uh, polarimeters instruments that will make uh, measurements of aerosols right down to the surface of the earth and uh, um, microwave radiometer instruments that will measure uh, clouds again and some into the precipitation they'll provide information about cloud density how much is water how much is ice the japanese uh, system will be focusing on precipitation measurements and ours will be 
our instruments are adding value to all those other ones, but they're going to be looking at the higher and colder parts of the atmosphere. So higher up in in altitude and in latitudes, uh, where we're because uh, a focus for Canada is going to be the high latitudes, the Arctic, the cold season winds, uh, weather and, and climate. We want um, some of our instruments are going to focus more on that aspect of uh, the the radiation that is lost from uh, the atmosphere to space uh, and the um, the formation of those clouds. Uh, the ice particles, they're very thin, cold clouds, but they're very important uh, in weather and climate. So the, the all these instruments together make a very complete uh, constellation. And I think NASA and I know we are very happy to be part of that. Gotcha. And so we're, we've covered the hardware side very extensively, as you did. Thank you for that. Um, what about the data? I'm a, tech, I'm a techie. Sorry. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. I can tell. Uh, what about the data itself? Will it be mostly, I imagine it'll be mostly utilized for weather prediction and things of that nature. Um, how else will it be uh, used um, for understanding atmospheric effects and uh, how it affects the weather? Well, that's a great question. The the fact is that when you do a Earth system modeling, so a modeling of the atmosphere and of the climate, whether it's for weather or or for climate, and when you're doing air quality predictions, uh, it's really important to, to have good information about these things, the aerosols, uh, clouds, convection, precipitation. And um, I'll, I'll, the, the main focus of the mission is to better understand all the microphysical processes that are going on. Uh, it's the fact is that weather models have to make lots of approximations. And in many cases, those approximations are pretty good. Uh, but they, the, the scientists behind those Earth system models, they, they are always uh, uh, comparing and identifying the sources of errors, the sources of uncertainty. And it turns out that aerosols and clouds and the way that they interact cause the greatest part of uncertainty uh, in climate predictions. And they also cause uh, some uncertainty in weather predictions. So better understanding how the aerosols and clouds function and this gets right down into small microphysical processes you know but wa water vapor is very dynamic it goes from vapor to liquid to ice uh, and in doing that it it uh, involves quite a lot of energy and all this matters a great deal to the dynamics of the atmosphere so better understanding leads to better ability to mathematically describe what's going on better physics better computer models mean better projections and and and, and predictions on short-term predictions longer-term projections gotcha so that's that's going to be the main focus improving our understanding our models our our services to citizens so those services include weather forecast and of course when there's a severe weather event that's got everyone's attention air quality forecast for people with a sensitivity to dust and even in, in some places where there's a lot of uh, aerosols uh, that, that air quality uh, forecast becomes very important and um, and, then, and then for climate we all have to know 
with as much certainty as we can where we're going in order to take those decisions about long-term infrastructure investments. I'd like to say that on the Canadian, uh, for the Canadian side, the Canadian Space Agency is very happy to be working with a, a great consortium. Uh, we work uh, with our partners in government at the uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada Department, which is kind of equivalent to um, or do much of the same job as NOAA does in the U.S., uh, with our partners at the National Research Council Canada, and with a wonderful consortium of 13 universities uh, coast to coast across Canada who are interested in the, the science, uh, the instrumentations, the, the ideas for those instruments came out of our universities. Uh, they're going to be partners in the development, uh, the retri data retrievals or data processing, and the use of the, the data for science and, and collaborations with our um, scientists here at Environment and, and internationally in, in making good use of the data that comes out of this mission. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.